to the cloud. You all have the two pages of Blake's poem, yes? You all have it? Just a, a, a brief word here. Hmm? Um, William Blake lived in the middle of the 19th century, early 19th century. He was a romantic poet. He was um, one of the earliest romantics. I'm not sure that you know what that means, but early part of the romantic movement that was um, so closely identified with the political revolutions at that time, the French Revolution, all that happened with Napoleon, the, the revolutions, the founding of refounding of France, the France, the, the um, founding of America. Um, one of the more important things to see about Blake is this. Um, Milton was in lots of ways the um, one of the greatest poets to write in English language. Um, I, I don't think he's as great as Shakespeare even close in some ways, but he cast a shadow after him that, that all, almost all serious poets felt. And if you, um, I don't know what you know about Milton, but he was um, an independent, a Protestant, um, um, had um, serious reservations about Calvinist thought. Paradise Lost is, we look at as um, probably, well, one of the few modern epics and, it, and probably the most important early modern. He writes it in the Renaissance. We don't get an epic again until, I mean a serious epic until uh, Melville's Moby Dick and James Joyce's Ulysses, which is modern for us. But at that time it was unusual because epics ceased to have the place that they did in the ancient world. So what, what Milton did was rare. And the language of his of his epic, Paradise Lost, is just, it's extraordinarily beautiful. And it's a different kind of English. Milton knew, I think, more than a half a dozen languages well. So the rhythms and, and syntactic structures of Paradise Lost, in some ways, don't correspond to English. So it's, 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 a, it's a difficult poem, structurally, to read. But the language of it is beautiful. But he was fiercely independent. Um, he, he had great hopes for Cromwell and was crushed when the Cromwellian effort didn't succeed and disillusioned and, um, but fiercely independent. He supported divorce, he supported regicide, he supported the killing of the king. Um, and he represents one wing of the Protestant movement, the Reformation, I mean, one expression of the extremes at the center of it. Blake continues in that tradition. He's, um, Indep fiercely independently Protestant, deeply Christian. Um, but like Milton, he, he stands completely out of a social order. Like Milton, he believes that established religions are basically corrupt. So the Catholic Church is looked at as the Antichrist. Um, and you'll see that in some of his poetry. Um, he, he saw Christ as the archetype of the imagination. He took John's um, opening lines in the gospel, in the beginning was the word, the, you know, the, the, um, all things were made through the word, the word is love, and, 
he sees Christ as, in his language as an artist, as the imagination, the visionary imagination. He's at the source of all creative work, all creative work. So the, the work that was begun in creation is continued with Christ and is carried forward through the Spirit. And the Spirit is the Spirit of Christ. So he's central. Um, lots of moderns um, take that language of Blake and completely secularize it. They, they look at it in terms of the unconscious or the, 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 the dark workings of the creative imagination at the soul of an artist. Gnostic and in spirit and so they do all sorts of strange things with it. Um, but, but Blake was a fiercely independent Protestant and one of the great writers of the Romantic period. <coughs> I'm going to read just a couple of his poems. He wrote lots of, um, oh great, thanks John. He wrote lots of long poems and lots of short lyrics and most of the best lyrics fall into a category of what he called songs of experience and songs of innocence. Let me reverse that, songs of innocence and songs of experience. And the songs of innocence are just that, they're, they're lyrics about the state of innocence you know, or the experiences of innocence. And the songs of experience um, suggest a fall, um, um, a slipping into darkness. And the, and, um, the poems that he write that he wrote usually line up with each other, they're counterparts. So you'll have, um, oh, I, I can't even remember, but like a little black boy and there will be a counterpart to that. And um, Here you'll see a counterpart in one of them. I, I'm, I've chosen the very first poem that, um, for that whole collection, songs, songs of Innocence and Songs of Experience. It's the introduction, on the, should have it on page one. Um, because it's, God, I still can't remember that word. Um, what's a political, I've forgotten it just now. It's, a, it's, a, it's, his, it's his poetic manifesto. That was the word I was looking for, poetic manifesto. It's his way of indicating that, that what he's doing is in response to a call as a poet. So that his, like George Herbert with his The Altar and some of the poems that we read from Herbert, Blake is showing that what he's doing is um, in response to a call. So this, this first one, Piping Down the Valley, presents him singing and a child coming to him. And the child is an angel. It's his image of an angel. And the angel responding to his um, poetic gifts and asking him to go farther. Do you have it? It's, it says introduction from Songs of Innocence. Scott William Blake on the top. Hear this one? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Okay. I'm going to read that, and then I'm going to read The Lamb and The Tiger. And The Tiger is probably one of the most important, um, most anthologized of all Blake's poems. And I just, I'm not going to spend any time with these. As I've said, I'm going to read them and let them sit with you. But I, I wanted to say a word about this. Notice that in the tiger poem, the tiger that he's talking about is not a tiger as we know it. Um, tiger, tiger, burning bright, of the forests of the night. This tiger is assimilated to the night. It's of the, the forests of the night. It's Blake's image of the archetype, the form of tiger. And the best way to understand this is this, because you'll feel the dread of it when we read it. 
If we, were to, if we were to be in Africa and turn a corner and see a tiger, I'm assuming all of you would be terrified. You mean, I mean, f to a point of paralysis, if you saw a tiger, you're probably freezing terror. Imagine, imagine what you would feel if the tiger you saw was not that tiger in a jungle, but the archetype in God's mind, the overpowering beauty of such a thing. And remember, the, the, the lamb that I'll read is, we all know that that's the Christ figure, little lamb. The tiger, in some ways, is its opposite. It's an image of fear. And at the end of the tiger poem, he talks about the, the stars throwing down their spears. It's the revolt of the angel, and, and he will ask questions. So when you, when you think about the tiger poem, remember, he's not talking about a physical tiger. He's talking about the archetype and the creator. What God did when he made that figure, if it's Satan, um, to have seen something with that kind of splendor, that kind of beauty and power, um, and all the dread in, that it would awaken that would be infinitely greater than anything we would ever feel about an earthly tiger. Okay? So with that, let me read, <coughs> let me read Blake. The introduction. <coughs> Piping down the valleys wild, piping songs of pleasant glee, on a cloud, I saw a child, and he laughing said to me, Pipe a song about a lamb, so I piped with merry cheer. Piper, pipe that song again, so I piped, he wept to hear. Drop thy pipe, thy happy pipe, sing thy songs of happy cheer. So I sung the same again, while he wept with joy to hear. Piper, sit thee down and write in a book that all may read. So he vanished from my sight, and I plucked a hollow reed. And I made a rural pen, and I stained the water clear. And I wrote my happy songs, every child may joy to hear. You can hear the calling in that, yeah, that he moves from stage to stage to become a poet, a visionary poet. <coughs> the lamb. Little lamb, who made thee? Dost thou know who made thee? Gave thee life and bid thee feed by the stream and o'er the mead. Gave thee clothing of delight, softest clothing, woolly, bright. Gave thee such a tender voice, making all the vales rejoice. Little lamb, who made thee? Dost thou know who made thee? Little lamb, I'll tell thee, little lamb, I'll tell thee. He is called by thy name, for he calls himself by thy name. He is meek and he is mild. He became a little child. <coughs> I a child and thou a lamb. We are called by his name. Little lamb, God bless thee. In this case, he's looking at a real lamb, but by analogy, he's thinking of the lamb. Um, I'm going to read this from Milton just because I, it, it's, it's, these lines are from a much longer poem called Milton. That's how much respect Blake had for Milton. Long, long poem, <clears throat> and I want to read them because one of the favorite movies that I watched when we were first raising our family and the kids were young was the movie Chariots of Fire. I don't know if any of you have you all seen that movie. If you haven't seen that movie, you should see it. It's one of the one of the most wonderful movies ever made. There's that scene in the middle of the movie when Eric's little sister is reproaching him because she thinks he's losing his calling, and he has that line where he says to her, "What was her name?" Jenny. Jenny, 
He said, Jenny, God made me fast, and when I run, I feel his pleasure. God, it still shakes me. Um, God made me fast, and when I run, I feel his pleasure. And if you saw the movie, you remember. I mean, it was almost a wild man running. Um, Abrams, very technical and, you know, trained and disciplined as a runner, but Eric Little <laughs> would flail past everybody. He just had such a large heart. Did you know that the guy who played that part was homosexual? And after the movie, he converted. He said he was so overwhelmed, so moved by that role that it changed his life. Anyway, if any of you haven't seen Chariots of Fire, you should, you should see that movie. It's an extraordinary movie. <coughs> From Milton. And did those feet in ancient time walk upon England's mountain green? He, they're looking back like Milton, but even more in the Romantic, to this period before the industrial, think about the industrial age and technology and what it's done to our landscape. And we moved away from the agrarian world into the cities and, and all the inhuman things that have come with that. So this is partly on his mind. And did those feet in ancient time walk upon England's mountains green? And was the holy lamb of God on England's pleasant pastures seen? And did the continents divine shine forth upon our clouded hills? And was Jerusalem built here among these dark satanic mills? Bring me my bow of burning gold. Bring me my arrows of desire. Bring me my spear. O clouds unfold, bring me my chariots of fire. I will not cease from mental fight, nor shall my sword sleep in my hand till we have built Jerusalem in England's green and pleasant land. I'm going to give you a 60 second lesson on reading poetry. Almost all people who read poetry go to the end of the line and stop. And there's some sense of that because it's an end stop, particularly if it rhymes. But you always want to read rhetorically and, and there's a word called enjambament, which means run on. And you want, to, you want to read rhetorically, so you don't always just automatically stop at end lines. Otherwise, you make it a mechanical thing. Da 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 You know, you don't do that. You read rhetorically. You, you acknowledge the, the pacing, but all good poets are part musicians. They're, they're reading with a rhythm and a music in mind, so you don't just automatically pause at, this, you know, at the end lines. You, you go over, so you always keep the the meaning of the line, directing, guiding when you do it. The tiger, 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 burning bright in the forests of the night. What immortal hand or eye could frame thy fearful symmetry? In what distant deeps or skies burnt the fire of thine eyes? On what wings dare he aspire? What the hand dare seize the fire? And what shoulder and what art could twist the sinews of thy heart? And when thy heart began to beat, what dread hand and what dread feet? What the hammer, what the chain, in what furnace was thy brain? What the anvil, what dread grasp, dare its deadly terrors clasp? When the stars threw down their spears and watered heaven with their tears, did he smile his work to see? Did he who make the lamb make thee? Tiger, tiger, burning bright in the forests of the night. What immortal hand or eye dare frame thy fearful symmetry? Extraordinary poem. 
listen to the beat in those middle lines. It's, it's like you can, it's automatopoetic. It's a sense like a hammer beating on a forge. I don't know if you heard that. Um, and when the heart began to beat, what dread hand, what dread feet, what the hammer, what the chain, what the first in there, what the hand. You can almost hear the hammer. Blake knows exactly what he's doing. Are you following what I'm saying? Yeah. All good poetry does that. It's supposed to give us some sense, as if it's living, that that act is taking place you know, in the poem. Okay. You guys are all going back and rereading these poems, yes? Uh, okay. Yes, we are. Shame on you. Marcella, did you want to say something about winged words? Come yes, on, you, go ahead. What, what have you got for us? Okay, I'm going to tell you what winged words mean because Bob asked me what that meant, so I'll look at it. Winged words, highly apostate, are significant words, as in those winged words like arrows sped. And then apostate means to something formal very appropriate for a particular situation or in relation to something. And then there are examples. We hope to play out his vision further by sending such winged words around the world via the World Wide Web. Then we go back in time. And Pallas Athene laughed and spake to him winged words exultingly. Fool, not even yet hast thou learned how far better than thou I claim to be, that thus thou matchest thy might with mine. Of course, what she's saying there, and you're too dumb to realize, is a lot smarter than you are. <laughs> uh, so it's, it's a very appropriate word, and it is significant. So when you see winged words, you know that the person hearing it should remember that because it's very important and fits right at that situation. And you certainly see a lot. Yeah, thanks. <laughs> I would just add a, a couple of wings. I mean, to take it literally too, that, that wings take flight, that they, but remember the bird, the importance of birds and mm -hmm. birds are always close to divine things that that there's some sense in which they carry a divine meaning. That you all, I, I, I don't want to go into this right now. When we get to St. Thomas or the Divine Comedy, it'll, there'll be a time for it, but um, um, the, remember, in the, in the epic, the words that are being spoken are from a god. So they tend to have an elevated meaning that, that they're, they're revealing a divine order to us in the way that it interacts with the world. And in that sense, some words have greater power, and some people, in the way that they use words, give greater force to them, like they're winged. And remember, the, the, soul, the soul, this is what St. Thomas will, will bring out more clearly. I, we get hints of it already here. The soul, the soul, the mind, the intellect, is immaterial. To the modern scientists, it's not. But according to St. Thomas and the whole realist um, tradition, going back to Plato and Aristotle, the mind is immaterial. That's why Aristotle said, the soul is in a way all things. It can take everything into it. 
because it's immaterial, those words that are winged are those words that get us most of that incorporeal, that heavenly, that divine level of things. So they do carry a greater significance. They carry a greater power because there's something divine in them. They're much closer to the nature of the soul itself. Don't you all have that? I mean, sorry, this is good, but um, when you write an essay, I'm, I'm assuming when you had essay assignments in, in high school or college, <clears throat> didn't you find you'd have this great intuition, some light inside of you, but the effort of getting it down on paper, of, of trying to organize it and say it well, that, that you had this thought and you finished your paper and thought that's not quite it or struggled or you weren't, you know, because the, the intuitions in our mind, on our intellects, are incorporeal. They're angelic. There's no body. It, um, Thomas calls it a verbum, an inner, an, inner, an inner word, inner logos, inner, spiritual. The difficulty is incarnated in as humans. We're not angels to give it a body. You know how hard it is. Well, I assume most of some people write easily. Well, Suzanne is a much more fluid, easy. I, I, I die over, I mean, it takes me forever to write. It's just it's such a struggle for me. Because to give our thoughts a body to incarnate is to be more one with our nature. That is a difficult thing to do. I mean, I know that from teaching all my life, trying to you know, teach writing and help kids learn how to write. I know what a struggle, I know what it is for myself. I think I told you all that I flunked wounded English twice my first year of college, so that's, that's how easy writing was for me. Anyway, winged words, you know, think about that. The, this whole struggle to, to give those intuitions form is so difficult. And Homer, I'd say, is a master at it. It's such a, such a good thing. Okay, let's start. <coughs> now that we're out of time, we can start. <coughs> Last week, we looked at the prophecies. And I'm not going to go through them. You should have them on your list. Um, but remember that over and over again, prophecies are given to men, and um, very often they don't hear. We talked about how rare it is for people to listen well. They don't hear very well. They don't see very well. Telemachus doesn't listen very well. He's very skeptical. He's not like the suitors. The suitors are very stubborn and obdurate. They're bestial in some ways. Telemachus is good, but he's young. He hasn't. There's a lot of growing ahead of him. So he, when all the when Athena and mentees, both mentees and mentor tries to reassure him that Odysseus is coming home. He, he blows it off, doesn't, doesn't believe her. And I think, didn't I read that scene when they were at Nestor's house, when they were telling the story about um, Odysseus, and, and I asked, didn't I ask you, why doesn't Athena just come out and reveal herself? Right, you did. Didn't I? Yes. Yeah, I did. You did. Um, and we talked about it that that's the last thing that she could do as the goddess of wisdom. Because if she came out when he said, oh, if only the gods would do that for you, and Esther said the way they did for your father, and it gave Telemachus uh, an occasion to complain again. Mm -hmm. And I asked the question, why didn't she just reveal himself? And Because if she did, he would learn to depend on her. She's the goddess of wisdom. She's trying to act in a way that will guide him, help him, without doing things for him. Um, so all the, pro all the prophecies are given, and I set aside, bracketed, a number of them because in, in several instances, 
Odysseus is involved in what happens, and he actually is the means for bringing a prophecy to completion. Um, we went over that, yeah? Yeah. The, the Polyphemus was told that somebody would come, and um, that's after Odysseus blinds him. So he brings to fulfillment some of the prophecies. Now that's not insignificant. The Phaeacans were told that one day, I'm going to go through this again here because it's really important for what we're doing today. The Phaeacans were told that somebody would come. And think about how this anticipates Christ. That someday somebody would come. There, when Alkinu says that to um, Odysseus, he's looking right at him and not seeing that this is the man who will help bring that prophecy to fulfillment. So there are a number of prophecies that are given in which Odysseus himself is the agent by which that prophecy is fulfilled. Now that's so important, this whole, it's like Christ bringing the fulfillment. He is not, not only, I mean he belongs to the prophetic tradition, but he was that which the whole thing was about. We looked at all the adventures. Um, I, I just want to quickly, um, I'm not gonna take any time just to review them. Remember, when he first identifies himself, he says, I'm Odysseus, this is the man that they've been singing about without knowing, and then he tells the stories. And the first adventure he, tell, he describes is with the Caconians, and there he's, he describes himself as a sacker of cities. So he left Troy, he's been spending nine and a half years as a, as a sacker of cities, um, With the Phaeacians, he's here telling him the story. Phaeacians, he's going home. Um, he goes back and tells all the adventures. The first one was with the Caconians, the next one, appropriately, he's a sacker of cities. He's cities. He's a he's a violent man still. He's been fighting a war. Imagine he. Men come home after a tour of duty of two years. He was at war for nine and a half years, killing daily. How does a man like that go home and take a place at home and restore order? But, I mean, particularly given what he's facing. Fittingly, the very next episode is with the Lotus Eaters. If you find out you've been violent all of your life, what would be the natural thing for you to do? Take drugs. I mean, do everything you could to forget it. To get, I mean, you don't have any control of your life in some sense. They offer him the lotus flower, which would make all the men forgetful of home. Remember, there's that description. When he started taking them in, they were all weeping. They didn't want to leave. Um, then the Cyclops, we went through that. Yeah, the but nobody. Yes, see, yeah. Aeolus is the bag of winds when they come home. All of the men are, all of his companions, assume that there's booty, possessions. And out of envy, they don't want have him to have things they don't. So they open the bags, he's asleep, and they lose shore. It's so important to remember that. He was right off shore, he could have been home, and he was asleep. Um, Lestrigonese, um, <clears throat> important episode, I believe. When he comes to the Lestrigonese land, he's greeted by a woman who's described as being larger than a mountain. I think that's so significant. She's larger than a mountain, and she, her, her husband grabs a guy and destroys him, and then suddenly Odysseus' men are attacked by armies of the Shrigany's people. 
throwing shoulder boulders that are as large as humans. And they destroy all the ships but one. So Odysseus is losing men in almost every episode. Um, and remember, this is at the center of this culture is a woman larger than a mountain. Um, then he goes to Circe, um, and he stays there for a year. And from there, he goes to the Cimmerian people. We didn't get there, and that's where I want to. Right. That's where I want to go today. We talked about the importance of language. Um, that um, that. The Latin. The Latin. In alio essa. I gave you that you phrase, did. didn't I? Mm -hmm. In alio essa, in another mode. In another mode. Mm -hmm. It's a picture or a word that's present in another mode. And you talk about suffering. About what? Suffering. Yeah, I'm, I'm going to come to that in a okay. second. Yeah, in, sorry, in Amio. In, in Amio, In another mode. In another mode. And I gave the example of pictures on a fridge or things like that, that, that the reality is there, but in another mode. It's why we carry pictures of each other, or have, watch movies, read books. But another world is brought up close to us and taken in. So language um, helps us to penetrate a world, to bring it into us. Can the Cyclops do that with one eye? No, because one eye means that people, the, the creatures, are reading at a literal level and remaining there. They don't go underneath the surface. They don't see. Remember the, the word, I, the, when we were talking about language at the very beginning, epic, epos, is a divine word spoken, which means we're going to another level. The word napios, fools, Napios in the Greek is fool, and fool, Napios in the Greek means childlike. He doesn't understand language. All of his companions die for want of work, struggling with language, to do more with language. And I gave some examples. Suffering. Remember, suffering um, came from the word sefere, to bear up, to bear up from underneath. We think of suffering as bad. Odysseus is called long-suffering Odysseus. Long-bearing, long long-enduring. What Homer is showing us is that, um, that something is being born up. And I went on to say that our word fere, from the French, um, gives us fertile. Our word fertile. It means there's something there. And I, I, I read that thing um, by the French philosopher um, about how suffering makes us conscious of something so a new life is born in us that um, we look at suffering as bad but suffering as horrible as it is when we experience I mean I, 
I know speaking for myself, I'm assuming it's true for all of you, the last thing we want to do is suffer. We want to get out of it as soon as we can. The cross says something different. But something is being born there. And out of that suffering, something will flower. It will be fertile. It will produce something. That's our faith. Omer had some sense of it already. Um, I talked about the word um, suffering. The word calypso means what? This is a test. Didn't I do this? You did. What's calypso? No, without looking at your notes. <laughs> Memory. I, you guys are oh, bad. Stop. Okay, next week, the teacher's coming out. Next week, quiz. Calypso. What does Calypso mean? No, without looking at your notes. How could you forget that? Apocalypse? Apocalypse? What does Calypso mean? Cover or conceal. Yes. So Apocalypse, Sorry. which is revelation, means to reveal, to unwrap, to come out. So we talked about the importance of Calypso as, a, <laughs> as, um, as one of the adventures that Odysseus undergoes, and he's there at her island. She offers him immortality. She's on an island that's away from men. She wants to hold on to Odysseus. And it's only because Hermes comes that he gets free of her. He can't get free without divine help, put it that way. Um, and we, we talked about the danger that she poses to him because if, he, if he's offered immortality, he won't get home. He wants to leave because, he, as a human, he wants to get home to his natural end. Immortality was not meant for him. And moreover, that if, if he stays there, she will prevent him from his kleos, his coming out. Remember the word honor, the, the whole theme of the Iliad. The greatest threat to him is that she will keep him from his kleos, his coming out, becoming who he is. And we talked about the word Odysseus, because remember the word Odysseus comes from the Greek Odyssei. Um, and I, we talked about the punning in the cave, that, that the word um, nobody, nobody is, is like Odys, Odysseus's name, and so when, the Polyph when Polyphemus's friends come and say, Who's hurting you by force or treachery? And he says, nobody's hurting me by... And the pun on that, because Odysseus is nobody. He's there and not there. Because Polyphemus says, there's nobody here. And, and the pun on the word um, cunning, the, um, the other Cyclops conclude that no one, metis, the Greek is metis, no one is hurting him. He doesn't need their help. The two words they use, metis, sound together like metism, which means cunning. So without knowing it, they're saying cunning is hurting me. You know. Now the question is, do any of these creatures get this? Obviously not. And the question is, do the readers? Do I mean, we're not, we, we are not readers of Greek, so the translation will lose everything. But you see the meaning, the question, are, when we read something, are we putting together two levels? That is, are we reading in depth with an analogical vision? To read in depth means, do as humans, not angels, as humans, 
can we locate a point in the concrete physical order of things? Can we connect that point with some ultimate reality? Our faith calls us to do that all the time. And as you know, certainly from my reading of Homer, that's what Homer's doing all the time. Because the Iliad, nothing happens that doesn't connect it with an ultimate reality. The gods are engaged in everything the humans do. So here, Homer's dealing with a story where reading is central to the action. How well do people read? Are they connecting some point in the physical order, that order that's available to our senses, with a higher order available to our minds or imaginations? So this whole question of reading is really important. Those people who don't read well don't get home. And you know that the suitors, I think you know, the suitors are all going to be destroyed at the end. So the, this whole question of language and words and how important they are in order to get home simply. Could I say that to remember words mean things? And that's really what that is. You can read words, you can speak them out loud, but they're just words. <laughs> yes, yes. Then your thought process works. And that's what brings a resolution to you. Words mean things. Figure out what that means. It means it has a definition that will lead you to the next word. Just remember, words mean things. Each individual word means something. So did you tell us what Calypso means? Calypso means conceal. 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 Hidden. Hidden. Wait, wait, interesting, because I, I did this last week, but just um, the word calypso means hidden, in the dark, concealed. The cognate, the root word that comes from that, is whole. And one of the cognates of that whole is hell. When we get to Dante's Inferno, I mean, I hope and you'll see them when we get to the Inferno. You've all done this now. You've read the Iliad and the Odyssey. It's going, to mean, it's going to mean so much more to you because you've got this behind you than somebody who's going to read the Divine Comedy who has not done this. When you get to the Divine Comedy and you go into hell, you're going into that world that in some sense was already anticipated in Homer's Calypso. Hidden, concealed, a hole. Where does she live? In a cave. Okay, Apocalypse. Revelation means apocalypse, come out of concealment. That's why we call it the book of Revelation. The whole mystery is being unfolded to us, revealed. Um, okay, just quickly. Remember, I gave you um, the image of the soul. This is Plato's, based on Homer. According to Plato in the Republic, the soul has three faculties. Two, one of them is divided. There's the rational faculty and the appetitive. And the appetitive, the appetites, take two forms. There's the appetites towards nobler things, like truth, goodness, beauty. You know, the honor the honor that comes to one moving towards those things and the appetites directed towards physical things. Those appetites that we have most in common with the beast, with animals. 
the appetite, the distinct appetite directed towards the nobler things is called philos, or anger. Why is Achilles angry? angry? Why is anger the great thing? Because of the integrity of the soul, the sense of right or justice or wrong. It's a mistake there. But there is this, in, I mean, you know the argument of the Iliad now, that there is this intrinsic goodness in man, and it's being bought off. That's what the Iliad is about. You buy off, you, you, you use your possessions, your booty, your booty, you use your strength to get it. And you saw the hierarchy, women are possessed. Horses, shields, armor, you know, and um, people want possessions and things, and that's what determines the status, the honor, the kleos of a person. That's the beginning, that's the disorder at the outset of the Iliad. If I'm reading the Iliad right, you know what my reading is, that, that as we go through, we arrive at this new understanding of kleos. Achilles says, I think I'm, your, your, your booty's the thing I need not. I think I'm already honored in Zeus's ordinance. And then he goes to the end and then everything is turned upside down, it's reversed. The, the ransom accepted, the way he settles quarrels in the, in the um, funeral games, and then that meeting with Priam where they weep and, um, and he protects Priam, his worst enemy. I mean, those things are, would not have been imaginable in the beginning of the book. So the whole structure inverts. Remember we talked about the symmetry of the work. So this is the, the nature of the soul in Homer. Now if we look at the, at the schemes, we can look at them in, in, it seems to me, two different ways. In one of them, this, we can look at this C as being here, central to everything that goes on. The sea is the irrational. I suggested that in some ways it's an image of grace. Athena is not with Odysseus the entire time. Um, she even says that at home when he arrives and they meet. The sea is not man's home. It's not where he's supposed to be. But it's the place he has to go if he's to learn. And this is the learning that takes place here. The whole question here is, has Odysseus learned from all of his adventures at sea? I think I asked, did I ask this question? Who's the worst reader in the book? Yes. Did I ask it? Uh-huh. Who oh, is? Odysseus. Yeah. Odysseus. Um, but in a qualified sense, everything he does puts his men at risk and in danger. And there are a number of times when they go to him and ask him not to do something, he doesn't listen to them. He's, he is the greatest figure in the book, without a question. So I don't want to make this a black wine. He, but in one respect, we have to say he's the worst reader in the book. He is an adventurous man, um, independent, intelligent, prudent, curious, wanting to know, a man of many ways. But he's the worst reader. The, the question, it seems to me, is can he, has he learned from his adventures so that he can get home and do what he has to do? And it seems to me that... Um, that what he does here shows that he does because the, I think we're meant to take 
a telling of the stories as an indication of his reflecting on his adventures and learning things about himself and, and reality, both. So the whole question of what these adventures mean is central to this work. Now, a couple of things about the adventures. I suggested that the adventures themselves are Odysseus's effort to give visible images of invisible realities. Visible images of invisible realities. But what he's doing is giving us visible images of a metaphysical ontological order, what's underneath the surface. And what we see there, for the most part, is grotesque. Yeah? Cyclops. I'm going to even say it's scary with Nausicaa's grotesque. Let me defend that in a second because it's not obvious. But this is, and we can call this whole section of the poem grotesque comedy. That he's looking underneath the surface and he's, he's giving us images of those things we can't see. And most of them are grotesque. The Shirini women, the violence, the sirens, um, Calypso in some way, Circe, Skill and Charybdis. Um, because they're all images either of something inside that is grotesque in us or in reality, underneath the surface. Some struggle going on, some violence. And the whole question is, can he really get home and, and have the marriage with his wife that we see him coming to have if he does not learn the stuff about himself and about reality. My argument about that is that he does. I want to come to the land of the dead because one of the most important things he has to do before he gets home is deal with the dead, the afterlife. But here, for a minute. So the Phaeacians and Cyclops are described one time as being together. The first description that we get in the book is that they were together. And then the, the Phaeacians had to move off because the Cyclops were so brutal. Um, if, you took, if you took this image of the soul, the rational, the thumos, and the appetites, where would the, where would the Cyclops be? In the physical. Huh? In the physical. Here. Yes. That's really clear, isn't it? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. They're one, they're, they're, they have one eye. So they're literal-minded, and they're brutal. They eat each other. And I think I left you with this question before. Did you look for them at home? If you had to look at home, where would you find the Cyclops? In the suitors who are sure. out house and home. Does everybody see that? Yes. They, the, the Cyclops is a grotesque image of the inner spiritual life of the suitors. That's what they look like. There's this passage in, in the end of the book, the night before Odysseus kills the suitors, there's an old mill woman who you'll read it. This is such an important scene. It's the night before everything is resolved, where he will go to war and, and with the suitors. There's an old mill woman crying out and saying, she's calling out for God. It's, it's an omen, one of the important omens of the work. She said, oh, I wish these men would you know, die. They have been crushing my knees all of my life. What does Cyclops do with Achilles or Odysseus's men? He crushes them. Crushes them, eats them. What have the suitors been doing? Crushing the life out of everybody in order, in order for them to feed the ravenous belly. 
They eat and drink. What, what does the cyclone be? He drinks and gets drunk and human parts are coming out of him. What we're seeing is a grotesque image of the real life of the suitors. That's what they are. Yeah? Mm -hmm. So the, the question for me that I put to you guys is on these adventures, where are all these adventures at home? Can we see them? The um, Caconians, Lotus Eaters, um, Circe, the Lestrigonese, goes on and on. Um, um, what about the Phaeacians? Let me just quickly read something because. Um, The Phaeacian, this is wonderful. There is nothing about our modern world that Homer didn't understand. I know you're going to think that's outrageous, but. Um, he understood them at depth that you don't really think of. Sorry? He, does, he understands them at a depth yeah. that you, you would miss if I, you know. Yeah, yeah, yes, yes. Oh. <clears throat> Here, go to that page. Somebody help me. Go to the pages before he identifies himself. So that's got to be he on page nine. Um, my wife is making faces at me again. Go to page one thirty-five. Quick, one thirty-five. Um, Trying to find the when when he comes when he comes home and the ship is put under a mountain. Um, here, um, two or two, but let's do one thirty five first. This is when Demodocus has been singing about the Trojan horse. And remember, mm -hmm. Odysseus, Odysseus is reduced to tears again. Um, Um, and Alcinous, the king, sees he's crying again, weeping, and he's concerned, and he says, tell me who you are. Bottom of 135. Tell me your land, and notice how a person is identified with his earth, because it's the earth that gives us a sense of we, that we're associated with a people, a family, or a community, it's the earth. Tell me your land, your neighborhood, and your city, so that the ships Straining with their own purpose can carry you there, for there are no statesmen among the Falcons, neither are there any steering oars for them, such as other ships have. But the ships themselves understand men's thoughts and purposes, and they know the cities of men and their fertile fields, and with greater speed they cross the gulf of the salt sea, huddled under a mist and cloud, nor is there ever any fear that they may suffer damage or come to destruction. Yet this I have heard once in a time from my father, now Sisu, now now Sithus, who said it and told me how Poseidon would yet be angry with us because we are convoy without hurt to all men. He said that one day, as a well-made ship of Phaeacians, men came back from a convoy on the misty face of the water, he would stun it and pile a great mount, mountain over it. Page 2-2. The Phaeacians dropped Odysseus off, sleeping, important, and um, when the ship returns, as it's coming into a harbor, what happens? Bottom of page 202. Poseidon stuns it, 
covers it with a mountain, and Elkinu says at the bottom, Ah, now, the prophecy of old has come to completion that my father spoke when he said Poseidon someday would be angry with us because we are convoy without hurt to all men. He said that one day, as a well-made ship of Faakian men came back from a convoy on the misty face of the water, he would stun it and pile a great mountain over our city to hide it. So the old man spoke. Now all is being accomplished. Come then, this is so important, come then. Let us do as I say. Let us all be won over. Stop our conveying of every mortal who makes his arrival here at our city. We must dedicate also to Poseidon 12 bulls. The first thing they do is try to placate, assuage Poseidon's anger. To be more prayerful. Not Well, let me, let me stop because I'm giving something away. Um, the, the Fi- everything the Phaeacians do suggests art. The Greek word for art is techne. Techne. From which we get technology. It simply means to make. When Odysseus first arrives at the Scyria community, he is overcome with wonder at the craftsmanship of everything because Hephaestus, who is the god of craft, built so much. So their world is full of art and beauty. When they, poetry, Demodocus sings, it's full of culture, games. Um, when, remember when they take that break, the dancers dance and they're described almost as if they defy gravity, as if they master gravity. They throw the ball up in the air and they hang in the air for a minute. The ships go across the sea as, as thoughts of men move. Um, so, and Nasika is a dreamer. She's always described as dreaming, being in her dreams. Athena comes to her first thing and says, wake up, your marriage is coming, go take care of your laundry. She goes to the shore. She's always dreaming. I'm going to say, this is um, the prototype of grapevine. <laughs> Suburbia. But that's the suburban culture where everything is beautiful and ordered. Remember, the Cyclops live away from men. Where are the Phaeacians? Away from men. They never see people with swords or bows and arrows or wars. They know nothing of it. They're removed from the world. Now let me stop for a second. Remember, these two were together. What's the problem conveying a man across the ocean without fear? What's the problem with that? Careful. Hmm? Not careful. Why does it matter? Who cares? The gods care. Because why? Because, because then you become godlike. Or more than godlike. Right. If you master, who's who's in the sea? Who's in nature? The gods. Yeah. Right. Poseidon. Poseidon. To cross the sea. I like. He's good. He keeps people honest. He keeps people honest. To go across the sea like the thoughts of men without fear is to presume to master nature. If you master nature, you're putting yourself above the gods. Remember this whole thing about the logos. The, the gods are in the world. Something godly is everywhere in the world. Homer's showing that again and again. Um, so the Cyclops have no technology, none. They uh, presume on the god. They presume on the god. Let god. We are higher than the gods, they say. Let God do it all. They don't do anything. 
The Falcons are the other extreme. Tech, it's, it's, it's a prototype of the modern technological world. Homer saw it at the beginning, what happens, the implications of it. So in between these two extremes, and Odysseus is at sea learning about all these things, he's coming to learn the archetypes, the inner forms of things, so that when he comes home, he can see them and know what to, to do with them. Now, one last thing, and then we'll stop for the day. Um, and in the land of the dead? Yeah. I'm, going, I'm going to go there, Doug. Let me stop for a second. I want to go to the land of the dead just quickly because I want to get to this whole thing about masculine and feminine, which is crucial. I, I told you earlier, it was going to take some courage to look at this book. The, the, the Iliad is the great critique of the male ego, and I think the Odyssey is the critique of the underlying feminine things that man has to deal with if he's going to get home. So, but let me stop for a minute. I want to look at the land of the dead. Any questions up to this point about what we're doing or what Homer's doing? Or okay, go ahead. Mm -hmm. No questions? I must be doing something wrong. <laughs> I must be doing something wrong here. My wife will tell me when I get home. <laughs> 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 pardon, <laughs> pardon, <laughs> pardon, <laughs> God. Uh, okay, land of, the, land, land of the dead, land of the dead. Let's, I'm just going to cover this really briefly. When he comes to the land, Circe, interesting, Circe, what a help she is to him. By the way, is it clear that he, of both women, of, of nine and a half years at sea, this is mostly for the men here. Maybe too late for most of us, I don't know. <laughs> I hope to, I know I'm going to get it from somebody when this is over. Um, the, when, when Odysseus is at sea, he's at sea for nine and a half years, yeah. Of the nine and a half years at sea, nine of those are under the influence of Circe and Calypso. He's at Circe's island. Calypso's Island, eight years, right? She offers the immortality, the attractions of the Here, I'm going to put it this way. The attractions that, a, that the beauty of a woman offers a man, the perfection of it, the sense of perfection. The modern world secularizes all of this. I mean, it's so reductive. And, and the strange thing is, while it, while it denies all of this, you almost never see an advertisement on television for a car or a, without a beautiful woman who's half naked or, you know, I mean, it just... Subli Why do they do that unless subliminally it has that kind of power? There, there is a greater power than the, mo than the modern world wants to admit in women. I, have no, I don't have any questions about it myself, but Calypso offers Odysseus immortality. She is an image of some beauty inherent in women that that's intimates something transcendent, and the power of it is great. Calypso, Circe, is an image of that in woman which reduces man to an animal. She has sex, she reduces everybody to beast, puts everybody under a spell. Both women are possessive. <laughs> Both women are possessive. We get all of this stuff about how women are treated as objects in the Iliad. I hope everybody's clear on that. Mm -hmm. can't. But we rarely look at the ways in which women are possessive. Circe and Calypso are both, they want to control Odysseus. Um, 
he can't get free from either one of them without divine help. Right? Hermes comes to help him get free of Calypso. And, <laughs> and he uses the Molly to help him keep his independence from Circe when he's there, remember, and then he'll get free. But remember, too, Circe is the one who helps him when she gives him prophecies about what he still has to do and the dangers he looks forward to. Mm -hmm. He has to go to the land of the dead, among, and then he has to go to the Sirens, Gilead, and um, Trinacia. I only want to touch on this today. Um, the Lestrigonese Queen, the Lestrigonese Queen, Calypso, Circe, Sirens, Gil, and Charybdis are all feminine. So even if nine of the nine and a half years have been spent dealing with having to learn something about the feminine, um, in addition to though, there are these other things that are feminine, the, the siren singing, the, the enchantment that they, that they present to Achilles and his men, that the shore is strewn with. Very often when I go, you know, I, I think sometimes when I've been in a bar, but it's not even a bar, when I go to the bowling alley, this may seem offensive, but James Joyce, James Joyce is, wait a second, Marcel, if you can. James Joyce is, who, by the way, James Joyce's Ulysses is modeled on the Odyssey. That's J James Joyce's, the whole book. And in the barroom scene, when Bloom goes into the barroom, all the men are flirting with the women, and it's the siren scene. And you can watch men playing up to women at the bar as if a kind of flirting is going on. But anyway, just leave it there. We've got to take seriously what he's showing here, that, um, that in the feminine archetypes, the inner forms. And it, it seems to me one of the things we have to at least think about with the Lestrigony Queen is she's larger than a mountain. I think she's an image of a woman who makes too much of herself. Think about a Hollywood celebrity if you can. Or, but, but it's not just the woman. There's a culture around her that becomes violent. So there's something in reality where that beauty has that kind of an effect, that violence surrounds it. So just think about these things, because the question that I'm asking that I would, I'd like to take up at our last meeting in the Odyssey, which is next week, is find these at home. Take every one of these episodes, Skill and Charybdis, Trinachia, find them here. Mm -hmm. And so we can talk about what Odysseus is confronting to bring order to his hope, to recover his place with Penelope, his wife, and what happens with them. Okay. Yes, go ahead. You've told us that all these adventures were necessary in order for him to be able to handle. He had to learn before he could go home and fix yes. that. Yes. And it was women, as you said a minute ago, who controlled him during that nine and a half years. Mm -hmm. So actually, or they me. did a good job <laughs> if you didn't have those women, he would not have had those adventures to be able to handle at all. I agree with you. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, for women, to wait, just, women to teach Odysseus to go home. Wait, wait, wait. Just wait, I want to qualify that. Hold on just for a second. He is do he he does not want to be with Calypso. He's weeping. And I don't know of anything she teaches him. I think the important thing for us, wait, wait, Marcel, wait, hold on. You can respond in a second. He's weeping to get home. He wants to get away from there. Mm -hmm. She doesn't want to let him go. Mm -hmm. we, we're not aware that she's 
deliberately teaching, and she presents, as we read, I mean, as Homer presents, she presents something that he has to learn about the feminine in order to get home. But it's not as if she's a, if you read Shakespeare's plays, like say the comedies, the women are actively teaching, and there's a man in there that's actually teaching a woman, one of them. But the important thing that I want to underline here is, is um, that there is something, the possessive qualities of the woman, first of all, I just want to be upfront about because it's there. That in both worlds, Iliad Odyssey, there's something wrong with men and women. Remember, the whole war is about Helen. Right. There is a disorder between the sexes. We see it in Pylos and Sparta. We see it in some ways in, in Ithaca because we've got 100 men you know, closing in on Penelope. So that there's this fundamental sexual disorder after the fall. And there's this inclination in both men and women to be possessive, both. So you might want to argue that they learn something, but it's not because we see them actively teaching him anything. And I want to, I'm going to make that even clearer when I look at the land. I want to get to the land of the dead right now because it's going to, it's going to make this clear in, a, in an even yet more negative way. I, I want to be careful here. Remember, the ideal here at home is, I mean, I, I made the point. I think we have to say that there are good marriages at Sparta and Pylos. Nestor and his wife, Menelaus and Helen, they're good marriages. They're, Homer's not putting them down, but there's something lacking, and, and what he shows is that they're living too much in the past. What we're going to see when we get to Ithaca is that Odysseus and Penelope are going to come out of this past the same way Achilles did, and there's going to be a moment when they come together that's extraordinary in the whole literary tradition. I, I want to wait till we get there, but something happens between them that shows Penelope is the image of a really good wife. Odysseus is the image of a really good husband. And something they do shows the same kind of completeness in a marriage that, a, that Achilles shows us in Cleos. That this is something possible between a man and a woman. Let me leave it there, okay? okay. Quickly, the, the, I just want to say this. Um, take, if, if, if we look at the land of the dead, I'm going to just summarize this because we're over time. I just, I'm going to make this quick. If you look at the land of the dead, Odysseus comes, he, he, he makes a sacrifice and spills blood, and all of the souls clamor, which shows how, even though they're dead, they're shades, the one thing they want is life. And he, he holds off letting them do anything until he talks with Tiresias, the prophet, the prophet and he finds out his destiny. There's one more amazing prophecy. After he talks with him, he meets with his mother. He tries to clasp her. She is in sorrow. She's buried in the past. She recalls that she, she died from a broken heart because he left as his mother. He tries to clasp her three times. He can't. He says, a shade, a shade. That's what's left in hell is nothing but a shade. They're all gibbering idiots. They've lost their minds. And some were told that again and again. And then here's what happens, and this is what I want. He comes to the queens. Um, turn to page 225. I'm not going to go through them, but, but just to, to you, can, you can check this out if you, if you want to go back over it. 225. Thought, hold on, let me see. Line 225? Hold on. Or it's, oh, sorry, page one. I'm sorry, 174. Sorry. Yeah, it's line. Thanks for 
kind of keeping me honest here. 174. Middle of the page, there first I saw Tyro. He will go through a list of queens. Tyro, Antiope, Alcmene, Megara, a number of them. Not one of them, not one of them remembers her husband. Some of them remember their children, and, and most of them carry in their memories the household and its wealth and developments. Not one of them remembers her husband. What's, what is the one thing on Penelope's mind through this whole thing for 20 years? Her husband. Her husband. What's the one thing on Odysseus's mind? Penelope. Getting home. So in all of these women, and, and by the way, remember this. My argument, he cannot get home until he goes here. And it seems to me one of the most important things he's got to deal with is the land of the dead. When he comes back to Circe, she said, oh, poor men who have died twice. You have gone to the death and come back again. It's a way of reinforcing, I think, what Homer was trying to tell us, that we can't get home, we can't live our lives as we should if we don't carry the dead with us. Think about it. how many... I mean, I, we all know these experiences. You learn you're going to die pretty shortly. What happens? I mean, we don't take life for granted anymore. We, we feel how precious it is. The church says, memento mori, memento mori, memento mori, memento mori. Remember death. We are supposed to live our lives remembering death because without that perspective, our tendency is to take life for granted, like we're just going to go on. And this is a reminder. It's not. It's going to stop. And what we learn from the underworld is, None of the women remember their husbands. Well, we learned from the husbands, Agamemnon, my sluttish wife. Mm -hmm. um, many of us died for the sake of Helen. There is no trusting a woman. <laughs> well, I mean, remember, Agamemnon got butchered when he came home, too, right. so, but, um, but none of the men have anything good to say about the women. And then I'll read this, the beginning of chapter 15. Where are you going? Chapter 15. 15. There's a page. Right? I'm trying to find it. Page 225. Athena has just gone back. She's left Odysseus. She's gone back to Telemachus to tell him to leave Sparta. And you know that Telemachus will pick up with this prophet, fugitive, Theoclymenos. There's one, one of the most important prophecies in the whole book there. Because it's going to be, it's going to get picked up when Achilles is, I mean, when Odysseus is actually slaughtering the suitors. Remember that when you read it, it's the lowing of the cattle. It's, it's brutal. Um, anyway, he's going back to Telemachus and tell him to go home. You know that the suitors have plotted to kill him. They're going to ambush him, and um, he will end up avoiding that. But here, she says, um, middle of. 225, Telemachus, it's no longer becomes you to stay so far from home. You must not let them divide up. So urge Menelaus of the war cry to give you conveyance. Um, since now her father and brothers are urgent with her to marry Eurymachus. Remember, he was the second in command, Eurymachus, and Tunus was the other. He is outdoing the rest of the suitors in giving of gifts and has been piling up presents to win her. No property must go out of the house unless you consent to it. For you know what the mind is like in the breast of a woman. This is Athena. This is a goddess, the goddess of wisdom. She wants to build up the household of the man who marries her and of former children and of her beloved and wedded husband. She has no remembrance when, she, when he is dead, nor does she think of him. 
What we see in the afterlife is very few women remember their husbands. They remember their possessions. What do the men strive for in the Iliad? Possessions. What do women strive for at home? Here, possessions. The church teaches us that, that the great sin facing all of us is concupiscence, whether it's for a woman or possessions. Whatever, I mean, whatever particular form it, it takes for a woman. One last thing here before we stop today. Remember, what I'm asking you to look forward because next week is our last week in the Odyssey, and, and that's the week in which I'm going to try to make the argument that, that in Odysseus we have a foreshadowing of Christ in the, same, in the natural order, in the same way that we do with Achilles. But one thing, we've not talked about the gods very much. Um, we've, in the, in the Psychomachia in the, in the Iliad, remember Athena's the one who fights, the only one who fights two gods. She fights Ares and Aphrodite and all the other gods line up. We don't have time to go in. Hermes is the, the stealth god. He's the one who takes them into the underworld. He's the one that steals off to get Odysseus from Calypso. Homer has a sense of something in, remember, I, 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 I'm, it seems to me that they are imago days, images of some aspect of Godhead, some particular aspect. They're good. Um, Athena's really peculiar in this way. She was born out of Zeus's head, completely formed. She came out of his head, and she's dual in nature. She's feminine. She, what are all the women doing in the world? Weaving. All of them. Calypso, Circe, Penelope. Athena's a weaver. It's sad that women have sort of turned away from that, but women by nature, as Homer shows it, are weaver. They put things together. They're constantly knitting things together, putting things together. Far more than men. Um, she is a weaver. She puts on armor. She fights. She's the only one that's dual, complex that way. Not Ares, not Aphrodite, not anybody. Why is, why is feminine, why, why is wisdom in the ancient world feminine? Here's my thought on it, because I've, I've thought a lot about this, as you can imagine, because I take Homer so seriously, you know. Um, I think for this reason, that, 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 whim, that wisdom is treated as feminine. It always has been in wisdom literature. It tends to be treated. The only exception that I know may be in that, that um, psalm in the Old Testament where he says, wisdom played in the fields of the Lord, and it's, it looks like it's a man. I, I think that's the Logos. I think that's Christ. Um, he was there in the beginning. But otherwise, it's, wisdom typically is feminine. Let me just offer this thought on it. It seems to me one of the reasons it's feminine is because the world as we know it, as it's shown in the Iliad, as we know it in everyday life, is brutal and it's given to masculine force. I think that's why male possessiveness is more prominent, more obvious than female possessiveness. It's men are more openly brutal. Uh, if they lose control, it's, you know, you don't miss it. Um, the soul is vulnerable to the world. It, it, it stands in a position. It's constantly under attack. It's helpless in its own sphere, in a sense. It's overrun. Look at Penelope. I mean, she's got a hundred suitors around her. She's being beaten up everywhere. So it seems to me what one of the reasons it's feminine is because it shows it's unto a world, it's, to, it's in a world to itself, unto itself. It's its own good. It's not given to the dynamics of the world in which possessiveness, that wanting to get control of things, and the use of power to get possession, or drugs, or you know whatever. It's not of that world. 
It's not of that world. It's quiet, helpless, for itself. There's a good in itself. So when she says, women don't remember the husbands, we have to remember that this is Athena. She was the one who looked over Achilles. She's the one who looks over Odysseus. So um, we've got um, all the adventures, and in so many of them, Odysseus is having to come to terms with those inner psychic dynamisms, archetypes, forms, whatever, the invisible things, the things that are underneath the surface, that he's got to learn to see in himself, in a woman, and in reality itself. Remember that skill in Charybdis is the lesser of two evils. He has to pass through that channel. If he goes by way of Charybdis, he loses everything. Sir Calypso says, go by Scylla because you only lose six men. Because she's showing Odysseus has got to learn. The romantic wants to make everything white or black. They want things perfect. Which means if they're not perfect, they're going to lose everything. What, he, what Odysseus is learning is that so many of the decisions he's going to face in life are, are going to be the lesser of two evils. He's going to suffer something. He's long-suffering Odysseus. He can't have it perfect. Where at home will Odysseus experience the lesser of two evils, where he comes to a point and he has to choose knowing that there's going to be a risk of losing something. Um, so, on the journey he's learning about the nature of reality, about the nature of the masculine soul, the nature of the feminine soul, because if he's going to bring order to home, he's going to have to have learned from these things. Remember, he was not a good reader. Not a good reader. Although he's a good man. Um, did he learn, did he learn from his mistakes so that when he comes home, um, he can do something about it? What is the first thing that he do when he gets home? He puts on a mask. Mm -hmm. He is nobody, as in the Cyclops cave. He's got to learn to put himself away before he can begin to answer the disorders that are at home. So that's where we are here. So next week, we finished the Odyssey, and my question to you all is, can you find them? Can you find these adventures at home? Where, if so, where are they? I'm going to ask some of you to give a report. <laughs> What's this? Oh, sorry. Um, my time shift on. It's, you, you mean the end of either, it? Either come early oh, or go oh, later. I forgot, yeah. Is that possible? If it's um, not, it's not. Uh, let me just ask. Well, two things, I forgot. Next week will be our last week. Mm -hmm. It doesn't make sense to do Virgil to me in the holidays. I've already canceled with the Monday because I know there's just too much going on. So what I'd like to propose for those of you who want to go on is that we start Virgil first week in January. Good. We do the same thing, four weeks on Virgil, and that gets us to the Divine Comedy, which is where we've been going. And after the Divine Comedy, I want you to do Revelation. Revelation? Yeah. <laughs> God. That'd be great. You think Bob would let you? If you if you guys want me to do it, I'll do it. I mean that's sort of scary, but but here, hold on before there. Bring that up again, would you? If you're really it sounds to me like you're serious. That's sort of frightening to me, but um, um, here, hold here, hold on. We've got two things. One is Virgil on the first week of January. We'll start the Aeneid. Okay. And you'll see that what Virgil does is take this whole Homeric, all of it, this whole Homeric world forward and changes it in, a, in an amazing way, but in a way that points towards Rome. And my argument here is that you're going to learn things about Rome. We're not Anglo-Catholics. We're not Eastern Orthodox. We are Roman Catholics. 
And my question is, do we really understand the Roman aspect of Catholicism? The best way into that is Virgin, because it's about the founding of Rome. And you're going to see all sorts of things about Rome in exactly the way we've been learning here about everything in nature. So Virgil does that. That'll take us to um, the Divine Comedy. But here's a, um, is it possible, so those of you, how many of you are interested in going on, by the way, to do Virgil? Just So, so, so I'll order books now. I'll order the, the Aeneid and have them here in the next week so you can pick them up. Okay. So you might even, and back, actually it'd be a good thing for you yeah, to read okay. before, yeah. over the break, because you can do it casually. But here's a question I have. Um, is it possible to, to meet either earlier or later next Friday, either at 8 yeah. or Whatever. at 10.30 or something Whatever like that? Whatever you like. Can you all meet at 8? Mm -hmm. Sure. Yeah. Is there anybody who can't? I don't want to put anybody on the spot. We've got a... We've got a guys, you guys still have Monday night or... Yes. I still have Monday night. Right. <laughs> okay. Can everybody make it at 8? Yes. Yes. Well, are you going to, next Friday's lecture, are you going to do on Monday? Yes. Yeah, it's the last one. Okay. So I was just going to come to that one. Can everybody here, who's, who's going to come on, in yes. the morning, can you guys make it at 8? Or is that too early? We've got a grandchild thing, and, and I'm willing to miss it. Um, oh, no. No, no, no. No, because no, I... No, 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 no. Eight o'clock it is. Can we meet at 8? Yes. I will be yes. here at 8. I'll be here at 8. Okay. With, I can be here at 7 muffins. if you want. <laughs> Some kind of pumpkin muffin for the season. God bless you. Okay, 8 o'clock next Friday. Yes. Or Monday night. You're a salesperson. Thank you all for coming. Not, not in my life. Life just gets too crazy.